Where, where, so should we call you Miami Steve or, or uh, where, where are you right now? I'm in Philly. Hold on a second. Philly, Philly Steve. You're Philadelphia Steve. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest, and then we have a great show today. My, my guest, man, he, he is prolific. He puts out a lot of music. He has a great new uh, YouTube uh, documentary called Welcome to the Madhouse, the Costa Rica Sessions, and he's a post-millennium rocker, which I want to find out that what that means, because I love different titles, and my guest is Sananda Matreya. How you doing, man? I'm fine, thank you, and I, I appreciate the way you just pronounced my last name. My my natural inclination as American is to say Matria. Okay, but in England, uh, excuse me, in Europe, the uh, MAI is obviously emphasizes Maitreya. So, I'm happy to hear someone else give it an alternate spelling or pronunciation. I appreciate that very much. Steve. Well, I cheated because I, I watched your interview uh, with Tom Rhodes, who's been on my show, and I know Tom, and he he got it right. And because I always do that, because when it's a hard name, you look like an idiot if you pronounce it wrong. If I go, "Hey, here's Sonando Matrayo," you're like, "Dude, I don't want to interview this guy because he he's an idiot." Yeah. Well, uh, first of all. Um, uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you uh, spoke with Tom. Tom's a really good friend of ours, and, and uh, we uh, sometimes we we joke that we're our brothers from uh, different mothers. And um, his his mother, uh, in fact, is is very very much uh, a southerner, a deep southerner from Florida, uh, and to some degree, some of the stereotype that you might imagine when you think of someone from the deep south and very religious, but I love her. I I I I love her so much. She's such a wonderful and, and sweet woman. And and um, and uh, so no. That, that speaking of Tom, it just brought back that those memories of uh, the fact that we're both Florida boys originally, and we both have that peculiar sensibility that comes from having flourished and kind of endured that environment. So now I want to start off with. Explain post-millennium rocker because you know you've recreated yourself. You 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 do everything on your on your albums, which to me is amazing. Because as as Tom is, I'm, I'm a former stand-up comic, and when I write a joke, I just you write a joke. But for you, you're writing everything. I mean, yours is a whole elaborate you know joke. You just go, okay, this is funny. But that's how I respect your your artistry. But tell me what a post-millennium rocker is. Well, uh, it, essentially, um, I was credited, and uh, if I'm allowed to kind of uh, extrapolate on this in, ma in a manner in which I don't usually or normally avail myself to the, the cause of, I basically would have been kind of credited in the past with having created uh, two different uh, genres of music. And no, no sooner did they call me initially uh, create the term Nouveau Soul, that then they um, kind of jumped on me for jumping out of that because I didn't create it. I just made the music that I was inspired to make and I don't care much about labels. Then the next project I did, they said, well, I guess this is kind of like alternative soul. And um, I kind of got annoyed with the fact that, listen, um, Soul is not a tribal thing. Soul is not based on how you look. George Jones has as much soul as Otis Redding. And, and 
and soul is one of those things like you know the famous quote about um that one of the chief justices of america made about corn that he couldn't necessarily um define it but he knew it when he saw it you know and that's the same with when someone has soul you can't really define what a codify what is that exactly but when you hear it you know it and there's just so many people who have it there's so many of my favorite um artists who are my favorite artists because they have that thing that when they present their music it just moves your spirit it uplifts you and anything that uplifts you and takes you from one state of consciousness to appreciate another state of consciousness as far as i'm concerned is classified as as, as soul regardless of where it comes from regardless of what the artist looks like um there's also the fact that i wasn't any more influenced by um let's just be to the point i wasn't any more influenced by black music than i was white music um and in fact the 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 first major musical influence of my life was the beatles and um i was two years old living in uh an apartment i was born in harlem but i was two years old living in a par apartment with my mother and stepfather in east orange new jersey when even though we weren't allowed to listen to any music but gospel music in the house, the culture all around, you couldn't help but hear, she loves you and I want to hold your hand from the Beatles. And I can remember as a kid walking around the house singing, I want to hold your hand and she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I first heard the Beatles, I, I just realized that, that, that's what I was, that's what I wanted to do. Because you know, um, to to if I if I can dare use the example of of Christ, which having been kind of force fed Christianity and Christian mythology from a very very early age, I kind of defer to that example. Christ said, "I've come to basically create many other Christs. More will come in my name." And I feel like if I can use that, the Beatles had the effect of creating many little other cockroaches you know what i mean like okay now that those cockroaches are out of the cupboard there's going to be a lot of others that recognize that i think i'm this also or i want to be this so you know um e even even if i can sidestep slightly even the fact that in the last generation guitar manufacturers are noticing that more women are buying guitars then guys are buying guitars as far as the demographic has shifted okay i was talking to a younger friend of mine that was saying that when he was coming through the guitar wasn't the same social or sexual cachet with the babes than it was for example in our in our europe and i said that had a lot to do with the fact that at some point guys were just showing up and this is not disrespect because i i loved a lot of what became known as grunge music but guys were just showing up in like, you know, Nikes and flannel shirts and like, you know, didn't give a shit. Whereas we came up, the Beatles looked like wearing Cuban heeled boots. They were wearing cool clothes. They were playing cool guitars. You wanted to be that. Well, that, 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 that happened in the world of comedy. I came from a generation where 
you know, and even Tom had a long hair, and we looked, we dressed, we went on stage dressed, man, and we... George Carlin. Yeah, but we would wear, you know, and then as it transgressed, guys would just show up, and you're like, wait, people were paying to see a show, and you're getting on stage, like you said, with the guitarist, with the flannel, same thing, it was like, it changed the landscape somewhat. I will answer your question, but further to what we're saying, somebody once asked the great maestro, someone asked once asked Miles Davis, what is the secret to great jazz? And in that inimitable voice, Miles Davis said, I won't imitate his voice, but what he said was the secret to great jazz is a red leather jacket. Okay, which is the, the truth. People are paying money to come out, you know, getting babysitters, what have you. Give him something. And in the in the way we look elevates the way we feel. If we feel like we look the business, it just raises the level of our focus on our game as well. All those things have an effect. The point being, uh, post-millennium rock was something I realized that no matter what you do, they're going to try to find a label to pin on you so they can understand what to call it or how they should promote it. I thought the better that I should get there first and basically present something that says, look, the millennium has shifted, the millennium has changed, and I'm kind of tired as a, first and foremost, a massive fan of music, okay? I don't care whether it's Hank Williams or Beethoven. If they're masters who have been practitioners of it, I, I'm moved by it, okay? Whether it's Bob Marley or Neil Young, my heroes are all over the road all over the map and I'm I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful for what it's allowed me to perceive of myself and I basically wanted to make sure that it was clear that I, I the essence of who I am is rock and roll and rock and roll is not just about whether or not you're playing guitars it's not just about gatekeeping wait a second that doesn't sound like just like punk punk is not just a form of music punk is also an attitude. So Thelonious Monk was punk. Bebop was punk. Because Bebop said, fuck all of this. Okay? We're going to create something now that can't just be easily usurped by marketing considerations, concerns. And if you really care about this, then you'll see why we're creating this. The same with punk. The, the, the punk generation was like, you know what? Screw all this these requirements of what's expected of you and what's expected of what prowess you have to bring to the game in order to, to, to be reminded that it was never, rock and roll was never about prowess. If you had it, no problem. It, but everything should be subordinated to the service of what this thing was originally meant to be in the first place, which was, this is our way out. This is our ticket out. This is our form of protest. This is our form of proclamation that we are alive, we exist, and we count. And, you know, so for, for me, rock and roll, Frank Sinatra, God bless his heart, was rock and roll. It's about attitude. It's not just about what the music sounds like. It's a spirit. Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson is rock and roll. If These guys are also punk because, again, these, these, these terms... You know, um, or if someone says, well, that doesn't sound like country music. Country music is Hank Williams. I idolize Hank Williams. But the point is, you don't tell the music what it is. The music is a living, ongoing expression and experience. The music tells us. 
So it's not like it's easy. You know, uh, he's he's uh, rest his soul now. He's gone now. But the great critic Stanley Crouch used to bust Miles Davis ass for decades that what he was doing wasn't jazz. Well, excuse me, who the fuck are you to determine what jazz is? You can say what it is to you. I can say what it is to me. But jazz is is constantly telling us, hey, I'm not dead. Uh, I'm still moving. I'm still evolving. Soul, rock, country, all of these forms, classical, are, all, are, are constantly saying to us, stop telling me what I am based on what I have been so far. Because a living thing living cultures and living bacterias continue to produce and mutate. So that's kind of what I also want to say about post-millennium rock is it's basically whatever inspires me based on the fact that I have just been affected by so many tributaries, by so many rivers that all flow into the great sea of expression. So I just felt like I want to get there before the critics was scratching their head and their balls to figure out what the hell I was doing. Now, you said, you know, when you were young, when you were two, the Beatles, Beatles hit you, and you, this is new, you, what you wanted to do. But then you were in the military, you were a boxer. How did you end up starting this career as a musician? Because it's it's a different path. Like, sometimes kids are playing, but it's like, as I said, you're a boxer. I mean, you don't hear many boxers going into music. And, and I want to know, how did this whole... How did your whole career start? Because you went through a lot and then you found stardom. I think, um, I think, uh, Stephen, that I, 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 I've always believed that I was called to do what, to be what I am. I, I, I think there's a degree to which there's less free will when you have a certain calling. Okay, so I think that there are people in the world who perhaps have more free will than, let's say, someone like um, a Martin Luther King or someone like an Abraham Lincoln or, 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 or whatever. There are people, I believe, who are genuinely called and earmarked that you need, you have to do this. I don't think Keith Richards could have ever been anything beyond that because he's so definably that that it just seems like he was destined to be that and 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 i'm forever grateful because he's one of the greatest role models i could ever have um but i believe that i was prepared to be this by having gone through those other apprenticeships because they'd served a great purpose in allowing me to withstand and endure this really fucked up business called entertainment is I don't have to convince you. There is nothing that we could have done other than what we do. I think I was talented enough or interested enough to do other things. I think I could have been uh, very good in advertising. I think I could have been a, a decent school teacher. I think there are other things I could have done, but there was nothing that was going to give me the level of fulfillment and belonging like like this. At the same time, the price you pay for that is great. It is just great. And I don't have to tell you that it, it's there's nothing like it, but there's also nothing like the price we have to pay for it. I honestly believe that um, I went to University of Central Florida for one year because um, 
when I was a kid, they wanted to up, um, put me, push me two grades ahead based on some tests that I had taken and, you know, whatever, comprehensive testing in the school system. My mother only allowed them to push me up one year ahead because uh, she was concerned about how being two years ahead of my peers would perhaps challenge my my social development. Um, so I graduated school a year earlier and during that year, I went to the University of Central Florida, where as great, a, a wonderful an institution of, of higher learning as it is, I kind of thought, this is just like another year of high school. And I was pretty disappointed because my idea of what university was didn't necessarily meet the reality that I found. Plus, I, I was just at the blossoming of my hormones. And... <laughs> I was surrounded by all of these college girls, you know what I mean, you did? And so I was just tremendously distracted by my hormones and the fact that my roommate was actually a cousin of mine who was the starting tight end on the football team and he was getting all the pussy. He was getting, and we had like a studio apartment where basically there was a one bedroom on with a bed on either side. And the amount of times I got kicked out of my bedroom because he was banging some cheerleader, you know, and and, 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 I, and this guy was like an Adonis. He was like six foot two, six foot three, thick, broad. He had the body of a, of a, of a Greek statue, you know, and I'm this scrawny little kid, you know, like constantly just woe is me, woe is me with this vibe. And I, I finally called my stepfather one day and said, you know what, um, this thing isn't working out for me the way that I, I thought it was going to. Um, and so, you know, as a Southern father would say, listen, if you're not going to go to college, you can't come, we can't move back here without paying your way through because we're done, we've done our job. So if you're going to move back home, you're going to have to start paying rent, you're going to have to kick in something, we got to make some changes. It's not going to be like it was before, which is fair enough, right? And during that time, while I was like back home a little bit, uh, I just thought what I wanted to do, the most important thing was just to get out of Dodge. So I basically enlisted in the service because it was seems like the quickest ticket out. Uh, and I have to say that my three years in the service was by far exceeded any college education I could have gotten. I will always look fondly back on the three years I spent in the military as the three of the great, greatest years of my life. Um, and as with boxing, it prepared me to understand the values of discipline, of focus, of organization, of hard work, of dedication, of being committed to, of, to, to choosing a goal, finalizing that goal, and how to organize yourself towards achieving that objective. So I look at those three years I spent in the military, as well as my years as a boxer, as being the greatest prep schools that I could have got, gotten to, to prepare me for the crap that we just have to deal with and the, the, the battles we have to fight in the industry. So you, you get out, you start your career, you start your music career. When do you get a record deal? And were you prepared for that first album to blow up that basically changed changed your life um uh yes the truth truth is i was prepared for it because um i had i i 
I had a vision. I've always had this thing where you you can't become the hero if you don't see yourself as the hero. So I came in with the attitude that I was that already. And I, you know, one of my gigantic, one of my most important heroes was Muhammad Ali. I had the, uh, the great privilege of meeting him a few times. And although I can't say he was as big a fan of mine as I was of his, which I think is impossible. Um, he was very, very supportive. And um, his face would light up every time I saw him. And when you grew up with him as your great hero, I mean, for me, he was on the level of the Beatles, Elvis, Rod Stewart, the Stones, you know, Sam Cooke, you know, the Jackson Five. He, he, was, he was on that level where he was just like a god to me. Um, but I clearly took a page from his persona, his book, and presented myself as a champion. Okay, I'm not only going to win this fight, but I'm going to tell you in which round I'm going to win this fight. So I took a lot of that and I adop adopted that. Um, and although later I paid the price for adapting that because it was misunderstood as a persona, um, I, it, it worked. But I genuinely had premonitions and visions of exactly what was going to happen. And in fact, there were people around at that time who can tell you that I told them all along the way, this is going to happen. And when people would say things were like, you know, it's a one in a million chance, what makes you think it's you? I said, well, then I'm that, I'm that one. If it's one in a million, then that one has got to be somebody, and that somebody is me. So I, I, I wish I could, they destroyed that persona. That persona got destroyed. If I miss anything from that time, anything at all, and I don't miss much. That persona was so beautiful because it was fearless. It was absolutely fearless. And it had the beautiful advantage of, of the great advantage of naivete, uh, of ignorance, of, of not knowing what was on the other side of that dream. And of course, when you're dreaming any hypothesis as a reality, you never see the dark side of the moon. You only see the, the, the luminous part. And as I say to like my sons, every moon, no matter how luminous, has a dark side. So yes, I, I did see that that was going to happen. I, I did have premonitions. I had visions along the way that reassured me so that I didn't lose faith and I didn't lose hope. And what happened was, I after I left the Army, I was... Um, I had been living a station in Germany. I had uh, had been stationed in the same unit that the great Elvis had been sent to the Third Armored Division when he was sent to Germany. Um, and um, it was in Germany, really, that I rediscovered my passion for music after I had kind of suspended my interest to pursue other things that turned out to be very good for my development. So I was in a band. I, I discovered a, a band. I wound up in a band in Germany. After I processed out of the army, I was home for two weeks, told my parents, listen, I'm going back to Germany. 
My future is set. It's clear. I'm in a band. That's what I'm going to do. Wish me luck. Wish me well. They gave me their blessing, and I never looked back. And um, so, yeah, I spent time in Germany developing my craft further. I, I wrote that entire album. 90% of that album was written in Germany when I was living in Frankfurt in my little one-room studio flat with my girlfriend. And um, that's, that's, how, that's how it began. That's how that dream began. I have to ask you, because we're around the same age. When that first album hits, because MTV was so big, okay, I know every woman I knew loved you. Everyone thought you were like the sexiest guy around. I mean, that was just, you know, the generation in the nearly you know, 80s. And sure. What was, what was it like for you? I mean, you were this, in, in the eyes of, you know, your listeners, you were this Adonis, as you mentioned earlier. You're, you know, you were this, this, what was it like? What was everyday life like for you? Because you must have been mobbed and you were a guy who was always very smart, focused, disciplined. Then all of a sudden, people are adoring you. I mean, how does someone adjust to that? I mean, luckily for you, you were well-traveled before that. You know, as you said, discipline from boxing discipline from the army but how did yeah. you how do you i mean it must have been crazy crazy times because i was a comic in the 80s and it was crazy and we were just playing little shit clubs you were on the world stage um it was kind of the only thing odd about again i i had psychologically prepared myself for what the thing steve is that everybody talks about how fame changes you and there were two points that always stood out. You, you, you would get asked all the time, has success changed at all? Uh, yeah, duh, you know, why would you, you know, and everybody's cliche was, no, success hasn't changed me at all. Of course success has changed me. But that's why I wanted it. Hello? You know, I mean, I, if, if I had been satisfied with what my life was before, nobody in their right mind seeks this kind of crazy-ass life and that's another subject for another day. Usually we have it, we have serious issues that we think only the acceptance of millions of people is somehow going to to uh, allow us to the gloss over. It takes a while to see. In some cases, it only further exacerbates those issues. But seeking the approval of that many people isn't necessarily normal, and it does it does um, pretend something kind of in you, you're looking for some kind of absolution or some kind of resolution or some kind of validation that your life didn't otherwise present. I've said this many times, often the difference between me and a hundred other guys who could have been me was they weren't motivated by the same chip on the shoulder. They didn't have the same rage. They didn't have the same impetus because anger, rage is great fuel. And if you can harness it, if you can harness those horses, it can take you very, very far. Otherwise, we're destroyed by them. Um, but the second point to make is that what's fascinating is that since I always anticipated that I would be famous, what you notice is not so much how it changes you. It's how it changes everyone around you. Now, while you're climbing a mountain, you're also gaining the stamina to, to by the time you get there, endure a lot of the stuff that you're going to have to encounter. Whereas the people who, who attach themselves to you, they haven't put that work in. 
They haven't worked on themselves. They haven't made adjustments on the go to be able to withstand the force of pressure that, are, that accosts people dealing with that level of, 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 of attention. So it's how they freak out. It's how it freaks out the people around you that often you have to adjust to the people around you that makes it seem like you've changed more than you've actually that than you actually have. But just on a personal level, you know, I was always uh, until I um, until I actually met my wife, um, I, I I was always attracted to older women because I I um, um, my relationship. Uh, with my mother, uh, be because she was such a religious person and grew up in religion, uh, it, she wasn't a very worldly person. So there were a lot of questions I had that a, a, a boy would get from his, his father or mother that my, my parents' religious, very religious and very conservative background, they couldn't really fill in those gaps. So what I found expedient was dating older women allowed me not only to get the affection that we men are looking for anyway, but to get uh, a fast track on an education that I, I didn't get because I didn't have, grow up with older sisters. I didn't grow up with uh, a worldly mother uh, to whom I could discuss anything. So when I, was, when I had like 15-year-old girls fainting and crying when they, and all of this, that was actually weird because I was never attracted to younger women anyway. Um, and even women my age, I, did, I, I didn't have as much interest in, as I did in older women. So that was kind of the only thing that really freaked me out was dealing with like 13, 15 year old girls who were like just literally peeing themselves and didn't know how to respond. And I didn't know how to respond. So I, it was just very kind of uncomfortable, but everything else just felt like I had been there before anyway. I, I, I felt like an old soul and hey, don't worry, you've seen this before. Just keep going through the motions and everything will be fine. But what doesn't prepare you when you're climbing Mount Everest what you're not prepared for is how much garbage is on the top of Mount Everest. You, in your mind, in your dream, it's this pristine, beautiful mountaintop. It's Mount Olympus, and it's just full of, like, lilies and, and, and grassy fields, okay? Then you get to the top, and you realize how mean and bitter and, and vindictive and, and just treacherous it is. For better or for worse, I'm a pure soul, and and um, I, I, I had to learn to toughen up, on the, on the job, if you will, um, and and that was the toughest part, was just dealing with how mean spirited. That that experience was, and that to the point where, I realized as long as I had the freedom to make my music and present my music to people. There was a lot of stuff I saw that I didn't necessarily care for. Now, after the first album, you know, you, 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 you have a hit album. And how did your creative process change after that album? Because I could tell you wanted to go in different directions. 
you have you have this hit album, but then creative creatively, you know, we all want to grow. And you've, as you see through your your prolific, I mean, you've had a triple album. You have this new the Costa Rica sessions. I mean, you've grown as a artist so much. You've always constantly been creating, but in that early infancy of your career of the success you decide to change paths somewhat. How do you create creatively when you know something worked once, how do you sit there and you want to duplicate that or what direction do you go in? Because as I said earlier, writing music to me fascinates me because you can hear a song and you can hear a, a beat out of the background and you go, holy shit, where did that come from? And, and I'm just fascinated by it. But how did you keep your create? How did you keep focus on your creativity? I think the first thing for, for there were certain factors, but at the heart of it is I'm a songwriter, and I my love of music, and my love of music, irregardless of what genre it's labeled as, or to come coming from, I just I just love great songs, but I can also be inspired by sound. I can sometimes I've loved records that were just not even great songs, but I was just in love with the idea. There's so many different things that, to be attracted to and to be attracted by. Um, it could be just the sound of a record. But at the root of it, I'm a song guy, and I just follow the songs. I listen to the songs. When the songs come, um, I very rarely, I'm capable of doing it, but I very rarely sit down with a, p a piano or a guitar and say, okay, now it's seven in the morning. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a song. I'm constantly listening to ideas. I'm constantly getting things through the psychic waves because we human beings are antennas. We're electromagnetic antennas. The same way thoughts will just drift into your mind, like where did that thought come from? It's the same way I, I get musical ideas. And usually when I get a song, I get a song idea the way you would hear in passing a car go by and you hear a piece of music in passing. You hear enough of it to know, oh, this is the bass, this is the guitar. You know whether it's keyboard or guitar dominated. Um, usually the, the, the gist of the lyrics and the title will come. I tend to get all of that in a piece of a piece and if I'm motivated by it, if I'm excited about it, then I will finish it. Then I will sit down and go, okay, yeah, I want... There's a lot of stuff I get there, you know, if I'm more interested in what I'm watching at the, at the moment. If it isn't interesting enough to make me turn off the basketball game, then I just let it go. Because, I, we're, like I said, we're an antenna, and ideas come and go all the time. So I tend to focus on the ones that motivate me to focus on them. Um... There was also other advantages. I, I saw how Michael struggled to follow up Thriller, which was uh, tough enough to follow up off the wall. And I just saw really early this constantly trying to tell. Sometimes you got to know when you've gotten to the top of a mountain. And instead of trying to go higher up a mountain, it's just better to just go find another mountain. Okay, and, and, and I was never, I, I, I learned from the people in front of me who struggled to keep outdoing themselves as though if it were an athletic competition. And I've just kind of never seen it like that. I mean, 
had I been Michael, I would have never, I, I, I would have not tried to follow Thriller with Bad, even if Bad was a tremendous, tremendous album by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but in the wake of Thriller, that would have given me the idea to just put a different, you know, wafer in the mouth to take the taste of that last thing away, to shift it, and then perhaps come back to something along those lines. But um, that's just not, that's just kind of, I think like that, like, you know, let's do an acoustic record now. Just, But it's not about someone else's process. I, I really only intellectualize it as I'm trying to look at it in retrospect myself. I always stay in the moment and just follow where the passion is, where the flow is, where are the songs coming from. And I can remember when I was coming up with Neither Fish No Flesh, I, I parallel to that, I was getting songs that could have easily have been the follow-up to Hardline. And a lot of those songs I did later record on other projects. But the songs that were coming that announced themselves as Neither Fish No Flesh, those were the songs that excited me. That What I was hearing was what was exciting me. And we have to understand, Steve, that everything I heard on every record that I've ever made, especially when I was with Sony, was the exact same shit I heard when I made the first record until they broke it. I've always heard the same stuff. Okay? Now, the template that I said at that particular time, now you expect artists are now expected to do that. You're kind of expected for your music to kind of have echoes of of the greater body of of the flow of of what music has contributed as opposed to just one particular thing um so everything I was criticized about before you those things kind of follow you until people just or those type of people realize this is what it is, okay and now that's what is kind of expected i mean it was a bigger deal when i first started playing all the instruments now it's kind of expected but then again i was following todd rundgren i was following prince i was following paul mccartney i was following stevie wonder stevie winwood i had heroes who were multi-instrumentalists i grew up in the south where there were, there were great artists who were still operating, called, like Ricky Skaggs, who's a country bluegrass. I'm a big bluegrass fan, by the way. Um, and those guys played mandolin and banjo and lap steel, pe pedal steel and acoustic. Those guys played everything. And when you were trying to feed your family, you played whatever could get you a gig. So I grew up in an environment, and growing up in Florida, which is literally one of the greatest musical melting pots where every single American and international and Latin form of music is somewhere around you, couldn't have been a greater incubator uh, and greater preparation for what my, my life would later entail and encounter. So, you know, but, but now, you know, everybody kind of plays everything. So, you know, the things that I used to be get to get my ass kicked about is now just expected of of, of artists to, to 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 be able to encompass. But at the root of all of it is is it's about the songs, and the songs are, are the real estate of my industry. Are the songs, 
And that's why I just followed the song. If I'm excited about a group of songs, that's what that project is going to be. And we'll figure out what to call it later. Now, you mentioned some of your, your heroes, you know, Prince, Stevie Winwood, you know, Stevie Wonder. Did you get to meet them? You know, have you met them, any of your heroes, and actually had conversations with them? And what is that like? Because you're meeting someone who you look up to and is someone you could call, you could say someone a mentor because you've pulled from what you've enjoyed what they do. The only one of my great, great heroes who were, who were hugely influential that I didn't get to meet uh, I still haven't met Keith, but, you know, I, I can get a message is that, but physically he's the only one of my living heroes, great heroes that I haven't, haven't met. I, I have a great relationship with, with, uh, Bruce. He's like a big brother to me. He's from the very beginning. He's been like a big brother. Um, we connected very, very early, um, through mutual friends, um, and um, he's someone I can always reach out to, even if it's just to say I was thinking about you and, you know, love to you and Patty, love to you and your family. When his when his daughter, when his daughter won the silver medal in the Olympics for the equestrian event, I was as proud as if she was my daughter. You know, um, that's Bruce's baby. You know what I mean? So it was like one of those kind of situations. Um, I've had a chance to 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 sit across from Dylan, and and um, you know, uh, me me and me and Rod Stewart. I can reach out to Rod anytime. Uh, he was a huge influence, and and I, I just love him to death. Um, I've I've connected with all of them, but some of them. Some of them are heroes. Some of them availed themselves. Me and Prince were very, very close. We had a very telepathic relationship even. I could always tell when he needed me to call him, and he always seemed to know when I needed him to reach out to me. Um, God rest his soul. I had a chance to let Tom Petty know how much he, he meant to me. Tom, Tom, I can remember being just graduating from high school. I was driving my... Um, my 1971 um, uh, Ford Mustang Fastback with white with the blue racing stripe that my stepfather had gotten for me, paid 1800 bucks for it. Um, <clears throat> it was my high school graduation present. I was driving to Orlando from DeLand, Florida uh, to boxing practice, and I was just about to cross the St. John's River bridge when I first heard Refugee by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And it was literally one of those, oh shit, pull the car over at the side of the moment, uh, side of the highway, what is this type moments. Um, uh, Pete, Pete Townsend, the great Pete Townsend, who's the godfather of my, of my English daughter, Serafina, he mentions when he first heard the four tops, reach out, I'll be there. He had the same experience. And that's the same experience I had when I first heard Refugee. When I first heard that organ and that drum, those drums kick in. And just the sentiment, you don't have to live like a refugee. And I, 
And I thought, this guy is from, I've got people in Gainesville. Gainesville is only like an hour north of where I grew up in Florida. So to have a local hero who was that great, who had both the Southern rock, badass, hippie stoner influences, and he really was that. He really was the quintessential Southern gentleman, hippie stoner, um, with those great British rock influences, even how much he loved guitars, you know, and his guitar play. It was everything about Tom that I just loved. I mean, I'm just using him to say that I got, I had a chance to, 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 to break bread with all of the ones who really moved me. And what it's like is just like, I, I'm forever a fan in the, in the wake of these, what these guys created to the point where some of them are even a bit uncomfortable because it's like, you know, okay, dude, with peers, you don't have to like <laughs> fanboy like that. But I, I'm just one of those guys, if you move my life like that, I've got to let you know how grateful I am that you moved my life. One of my, my fondest memories was Brian Wilson came to a party that was thrown for me. And um, I, I look at Brian at one point and I say to him, this is some classic Hollywood shit. Hey, Brian, let's let's leave here and let's go to another club, right? So Brian is like this really shy, unassuming guy. One of the, one of like the Schubert of American fucking music, okay? And he says, okay. So I'm in the back of this rent, this, um, this Ford Thunderbird we rented. Uh, I was still living in England at the time. And uh, I'm in the back with my driver, uh, bodyguard in the front seat. There's me sitting here, Brian in the middle, and his, his guy on the other side in the back seat. And I've got my arm around the back like this, like king of the world, and it's a full moon. And at some point, we're driving down Sunset Boulevard. I mean, and I turn to Brian and I say quietly, I just want you to know how very much I love you. And he kind of like sheepishly kind of looks down, and, you know, and I kind of had to make sure he understood this wasn't some gay <laughs> shit, okay? No, no offense to my gay fans, but just in case he was uncomfortable and didn't know where the vibe was coming from. But he just kind of said, well, thank you. I appreciate it. You know what I mean? And those moments stand out for me because you they, they just can't otherwise know what the way their music has altered the genetic structure of your life and your existence. And without them, you just be a guy delivering the mail with some dog chasing you. Now, your new project, Welcome to the Madhouse, you play all your instruments, but on this you have people playing with you. Is it hard for you to pick musicians because you know how that part is supposed to play? Not necessarily when you know that you're picking from among the best, especially when I lived in London and Los Angeles, you're living in capitals of music where the great musicians come. It was like being in Vienna at the time of Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn. Um, so you know that you've got people capable of doing it. Sometimes the only difficulty is finding someone who's stubborn and think and resents that you know exactly what you're looking for. And they might be used to being hired by producers because of the ideas that they themselves can contribute. 
sometimes that's the only thing you run into is uh, potentially is to have to remind guys that it's it's your music. You know exactly what you want. So just with all due respect, shut up and play the fucking tune or, or play it like this. That's sometimes the only potential issue. With the Sugar Plum Pharaohs, which is the name of the, the, uh, the group that I work with live here, they were already a group of musicians who had known each other for many years and worked together. They live about 45 minutes north of Milano, close to the Swiss border, in a beautiful little town called Vareza, which is a, a beautiful town full of lakes. It's just one of those idyllic towns that you would kind of retire to one day if you had the opportunity to do so. And they'd already worked for, uh, for years together. They're all music teachers themselves. So these people are more than capable of, of both taking by ear and literally writing your shit down. So by the time we come together and I give them time to prepare which songs we're going to be working on, it's really just a matter of fine tuning and making adjustments or changing the arrangements on the, on the fly based on the fact that, well, that's the record. This is what I kind of want to hear for live presentation. Um, but no, it's not difficult at all when you generally are going to attract people who um, are more than capable of interpreting your ideas. For about eight years, I worked with a group called the Nudge Nudge that were um, the time I spent uh, in a trio. I wanted, for many years, I wanted to be in a rock trio. So I finally got the chance to put myself in that format um, because, you know, when it's just three musicians, even when there's four musicians, one of the musicians can coast or hide a little bit. When there's just three musicians, you're on a tightrope and there's no place to run, no nowhere to hide. And that's thrilling when you're still trying to um, prove your value as a musician as, as opposed to some of the other levels of, of attention you've got. I, I had to go through that as a musician to kind of even prove to myself that I was I was on that level as a musician. And um, so for about eight years, um, I worked in a trio where I was probably more of a mentor to the, those two musicians than I would have probably regarded them as equals. Um, and that was interesting. But after a while, after I had kind of um, gotten that through my system, um, yeah, I've, I found these um, these these musicians, um, and um, so no, it wasn't difficult. And as as probably you can see, Steve, in the video in the film itself, um, which is also of course available through all the streaming services as a live album, um, you can see the the comfort and just the sheer joy that I have in being in that environment because I can't pretend that I get exactly the same thrill uh, performing in front of the li live audience before uh, as much as I used to before. It's kind of as soon as I step on stage, it looks, it takes care of itself. That thing clicks on and then there it is. But I can't say that I look forward to it with the same degree of hunger, thirst and passion as I used to before I found my family. Because part of the motivation for being on, for taking yourself through that is at least subconsciously, you're still looking for where you belong. You're still looking for your family. 
once you find your family, then some of the motivation for spending so much time on the road kind of does evaporate a little bit. Um, but there is nothing that can replace being in a, a room with other musicians making music. It's its own drug. And um, I say that not lightly because from February of last year, I stopped smoking. Um, and I didn't know whether I was going to stop for good because I started smoking at 33. And up until what, last year, um, right before my 60th birthday, I thought, let's give this a break for a while or longer than the breaks I, I used to give, give myself. And so um, at some point after a few months, I realized, fuck, I really miss smoking. See, okay. I, I quit. I quit 11 years ago. Yeah, I really miss it. But let's let's give it a year. Let's let's give it until this February and see how we feel. So I stopped smoking in the middle of February last year. I think next week is the middle of February. So I have another week to determine whether I'm going to like jump back into it. What? But I, I would be lying to say I didn't didn't miss it. Um, meanwhile, behind the scenes, our drummer Marco is a smoker, and so I would endure. He would ask me, "Hey, you mind if I if I smoke? If, go ahead, dude." So that was kind of a test, because this was during the summer that we were doing these sessions. So at that point, I was like five six months um, smoke free. So that was a bit of a test, but other than, um, you know, and I, 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 a few years before that, I, I stopped whiskey, which is a great, a great rock and roll elixir. So basically, I, I was on nothing but beers. Um, and even, even beer, I can't handle more than really like one or two a day at the most. So it was a very interesting time. But so I don't use the, the phrase lightly that the drug was the music itself, you know, and it was it was great to reintroduce the understanding that there was nothing in particular that put me in the space that I needed more so than the music itself. Your music is stay. You know, you're a great musician. I need to ask you, though. Thank you, sir. Sananda. How did the name come about? What made you break and find this new person, which it's great. And I'm glad I pronounced it right, because I would have felt like a real dick if I said it wrong. But uh, tell me, just tell me how that came about. Well, depending on where you are in the world, first of all, you can either pronounce it Sananda, which the British, for example, and some of the Americans, others would say Sananda, but that just depends on where you are. Uh, with regard to how your culture treats the alphabet. A, for some people, is A. Like, even in American culture, white people tend to say, my aunt. Okay? Black people tend to say, my aunt. So, it, it depends on where you are. There is no wrong way to say it. You know what I mean? It's just as long as you say it, I appreciate the respect that you, 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 you place on it, because that's, 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 excuse me, that's what it is. I'm glad you asked that question. It was very simple. There was a period of two years where I felt such a sense of psychological dissociation from the previous name 
that I was literally wandering around in a kind of daze and a fog. Obviously, a lot of that would be considered post-traumatic stress disorder because the beating that I took was tremendous. Um, I don't. I, I have as much time today as you need because this is what I've devoted this day to. Um, so it depends on how, how much you want me to extrapolate uh, concerning this question. But I took such a psycho, such psychological abuse about the price I paid for my success, okay? And everyone, we should all come to conclude that, the, the, and we will at some point, nothing in life is free. And whether you pay in advance or you pay after the fact, we all have to pay, all right? I mean, uh, Doug Morris, who was a, a record executive, who was a legend as an executive in his field, um, I met him in the 90s, and he told me even then in the 90s, he said, I've never met anybody in the 40 years, up until that point, he'd been in the business 40 years. He said, in 40 years, I've never seen anybody come through the way you did. He said, not even Elvis came through the way you did. Um, of course, to, to, to bring a bit of a conclusion to something that you would ask actually much earlier, you asked how did I handle that success or how did it feel like? You, and uh, Jermaine to what Doug Morris has said that he'd never seen it, you're, you're in the midst of it. You're in the middle of that hurricane. You, you don't see it the same way others are experiencing it because you're right there at the point of contact with everything and you're just focused on the moment you're living in. It's very difficult to live it and also be beside yourself observing it at the same time and having some historical reference that even having studied so much of pop music up until that point, the time you're living in, the force of pressure around you won't allow you really much um, time to meditate on anything except surviving that experience that you're having and moving forward. Because it's such a maelstrom of energy that you're in the midst of, that it's just pure survival instinct while just trying to remember who you are, remember what your, where your vision is, and just keeping your vision focused forward. Okay, the, the price I paid for that, the, the, the beatings, the backlash, the political aspect that I could have never have envisioned. And when I say political, to be perceived as a political threat, Steve, you don't have to be singing about politics at all. You could be singing about gin and juice. But I remember there was, an ex there was an executive who ran the English company. It was CBS. I signed to CBS Columbia, um, who were bought out and became Sony, pretty much between my first and second records, which also had a large bearing on why my second record didn't have the same atmospheric um, energetics supporting it simply because for, for if for no other reason there was a tremendous distraction as the company was being transitioned from CBS or from Columbia to Sony. Almost everyone that you knew that were a part of your team had either been promoted by the success of your project because as you know, the saying goes, success is many fathers, but failure is an orphan. So everyone was rewarded with job promotion, 
bigger offers from other companies. Basically, the set of bitches you were looking at before are some completely different bitches than the one behind your next project, not to mention the whole complete ethos of the company changed. CBS Columbia, if you had attained a certain level of their regard and respect, was definitely a much more artist-friendly company than Sony, who came in with a completely different uh, business model that... No, we don't listen to the artists. The artists listen to the business model. The artists listen to us. And selling music is no different from selling t spare tires, parts, uh, TVs. Um, it, it's all the same. Selling is selling. Which, was allowed, which allowed them to move over a guy who had run the, um, the, the stereo division and put him in charge of the music division because their 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 brainwave was focused on the idea that what's the difference we sell things and the whole reason that and this is a long-winded explanation but maybe one that might enlighten you and your 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 listeners as to what went behind this great transformation why Sony had lost out on big wars that happened within their, their, their sphere of influence industry-wise. There was the Beta Wars, where I think Betamax lost out to, um, to, um, to I can't remember what it was. Uh, it was right before that. It was, and then it was Beta that they lost out to Philips. On, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something um, where the industry standard was a, 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 a battle between Sony and Philips as to who would establish the industry standard for a piece of equipment. Okay, they lost to Philips. The second was Beta versus DAT or something like that. Once again, they lost out to Philips because the industry went with DAT which is dig digital audio transfer or whatever that stood for. Okay. The third war, no, it was that beta. The second war was, it was between CD and something else. Once again, Phillips won that battle. Okay. The third time, by the third time, Sony realized that the reason we lost out to Philips is because for as much as any other reason, Philips had the software, i.e. the catalog, to combine with their hardware, which gave them an advantage in the industry. So Sony realized that the next time they had to go to battle to determine an industry standard, it, be, it was incumbent upon them to control as much catalog as possible to be able to package with what they were trying to promote. So by the time the CD revolution happened, Sony jumped in with both feet. Once again, they were battling Phillips for supremacy. And this is when Sony realized we got to control product to package this, the, the, on, 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 on the, the new digital revolution. And that's what gave them the idea to, to purchase a record company. The record company that, that was the hottest at the time that had four of the five biggest male artists was Columbia, which had myself, 
Bruce, Michael, and George Michael. The fifth being Prince, but he was Warner Brothers. But that was at that particular time. And so my success being was kind of the star that broke the camel's back because the way it happened just happened at the perfect timing for Sony to, to, to find Columbia just to be the, the one that was the most desirable company for them to have. Plus, Johnny Cash was a Columbia artist on the catalog. Dylan was Columbia catalog. Billy Holiday was Columbia. The, the, the catalog was unimpeachable. You couldn't mess with it. Plus, at the time, I was like the last really shiny object that was shining at the time that made Sony go, yes, let's t let's buy Columbia. Let's buy CBS. Um, and of course, they inherited all of CBS, the, the broadcast division, everything, I think, except the TV division, um, everything else they, 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 they grabbed a hold of. So there was an absolute sea change in the way they did business. First of all, they were a Japanese company. The Japanese are just some different bitches, okay? They have a completely different mindset. Um, I always envied um, uh, the way I can remember the great, late, great uh, Master Zappa, Frank Zappa, saying that he appreciated how Warner's allowed Prince to just be himself because that's the way a major label should behave. It stop dictating to the artist. Let the artist reveal to you who they are and let's put the plan behind that. Well, that's what I was allowed to do. But Sony's attitude was, mm, no, no, not so fast. That's not how we manage the Sony empire. And so they couldn't adjust to the fact that artists, unfortunately, are not just like a loaf of bread. We're not just like notes, but nuts and bolts. We're emotional beings, okay? And you may get away with telling your managers, yeah, it's just like selling anything else. It's just like selling car parts. But that's where you're going to run into problems with, with people like myself who couldn't necessarily feel comfortable in that environment. So there was a period of time when that adjustment was being made, when I was made to feel just like an interchangeable part that I was either going to adjust to the Sony way of thinking and, and let the executives tell me who I was, even though I had already proven that by listening to, to me, following my instincts, I mean, Sony based, uh, CBS let me get on with it because Record companies tend to be superstitious. If they choose the first thing that works, hey, they're on a roll. Let them keep doing it. Okay, we can always make adjustments and bring in our expertise if it doesn't work. If they ask for the help, we will give them the help they need. But artists who need us to do everything for them, we're equipped to do that. Artists who just need us to lay back and support their process, we're capable of doing that. Um, Sony's attitude was different. I had a great relationship with the, the gentleman who ran America and basically was the worldwide guy, Walter, the late, great Walter Yetnikoff, God rest his soul. Um, he was a, he was basically, he was a Brooklyn guy. He was a Russian Jew. There's some different bitches, okay? And if they're on your, if they're on your side, they're on your side. 
if they get it, they get you. And my relationship with him and many artists who revered him, revered him because he was this big, gregarious bear hug of a guy. He was blustery. He was a Brooklyn guy, okay? But if he was on your side, you just felt like you could, you could battle the world, all right? Now, when he, was in, when he went to rehab, because one of the reasons artists loved him was because he partied with his artists. He hung out with them, okay? He hung out with us. He, he embraced us. He was full of stories. He was full of anecdotes. He was a Yiddish guy. You know, you know what they're like, you know. And we, we just had this great vibe. We had this great vibe. And, you know, without giving up too much, he would always tell me, oh, Michael, that Michael, that kid is breaking my balls. He's fucking breaking my balls. He just called and asked for this. He just called and asked for that. So it was great being around him because he would never reveal anything too intimate about his artist. But those kind of things, you know, he would tell you about great stories Dylan would tell him or we just loved him. Basically, while he was in rehab, his second in command, Tommy Mottola, and this is where in the movie you hear like, boo, boo, you know, you hear like crowd noise and Bronx cheers. When Tommy Mottola basically went to the Japanese and said, hey, your guy's in rehab because he's too busy doing coke. He's too busy hanging out and partying with the artists. He's not paying attention. He's taking his eye off the ball. Okay? Basically, Tommy wanted his job. And the Japanese are kind of pretty, as you know, they're pretty conservative, particularly when it comes to image. And in any event, one of the things that Walter would always complain about is that he was always fighting with Lawrence Tisch. Lawrence Tisch was the guy who owned all of CBS up to that point, who was another New York guy. Uh, and, 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 and he was always complaining about how Tish was busting his balls. And, you know, and Tish is a giant. He was a legend because he built CBS from, from pretty much nothing and made it into the behemoth that it became. But he was that kind of guy, Walter. He loved fighting above his weight. He loved a good fight. But he was blindsided by Matola, who he elevated. So it was a kind of like snarky, little weaselly kind of thing that Matola did. And there was a lot of us who never really, really respected him or gave him the same respect we have for Walter because A, he wasn't Walter. And, and B, it was kind of bullshit the way he blindsided Walter to take over his position. But he was definitely much more in alignment and pledged himself to be in alignment with the Japanese disposition as to how they wanted Sony run. And it wasn't an artist-friendly company anymore. It was, A, you do what we fucking tell you. And I'm not that guy, okay? And at one point, they made it clear to me, it doesn't matter what you want anyway, because even though you created this name, we own this name. This is ours. And if you want to continue to trade under it, it's under our terms. And if you know me, that's... My people are natives. My people are aboriginals, aborigines. And we were among those native tribes that we would rather die we would rather starve ourselves to death than let you come onto our territory, our land, make us slaves, and then have us work our land for you. 
We weren't those bitches, okay? And I've, I, I proudly claim West Indian blood. I proudly claim Spanish as well as Scots-Irish blood. But the root of who I am is Native American who accepted those tribes into our tribe because everybody wanted to be with us because we had it going on. So um, the slaves escaped and joined us and we would let them in. A lot of the, the, the uh, European women, when they found out that we were matriarchal cultures who respected the women and gave them power, they ran away to join us. I look like I do because we were very, if you, if you were willing to adhere to our way of life, we would accept you. And it's just not my nature to be told who I am. Okay, especially after I'd already proven, I, hey, did I, uh, follow my instincts, my instincts are good instincts. Um, for two years, Steve, I, I was just dispossessed of myself and my spirit, and I, I, was, I was close to suicidal, um, which is kind of dangerous because, again, speaking of my native tribes, we don't believe in death. Death is a Western concept. We believe that all there is is life, and life just takes different forms, and so, you know, death is just a guy gets out of a car that he's driven for a long period of time and he just abandons the car. But the driver doesn't go anywhere. The car is what is gotten rid of or the car is what is let go of. That's how we view death. I, I, it wasn't a good headspace to be in because I don't have this fear of it. And so if there's nothing left to live for, which of course I have now, I have all the reasons in the world to live, it's a kind of dangerous state of mind. So basically, and I, and I appreciate you allowing this long-winded response. Basically, I went into meditation to ask, what do I do? How do I go forward? How do I move myself out of this state? Because it's not a healthy state. And I knew that I had so much more inside of me. I knew that I wasn't finished making a contribution to an art form that had given me so much. So basically, after a couple of, a couple of years, I started to have a series of dreams, three in particular that I can remember, where I kept hearing the name Sananda called out in the dream. And every time I would look around expectantly, like I was expecting to see who this person was, because the name rung a bell. But every time in the dream, I never could see, no one would answer to the name Sananda, but I would hear it called out. Finally, the third time I had this dream, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was walking in a forest clearing with three angels. And the angels looked stereotypically or archetypally like the West. We symbolize angels with the white robes, the white wings the long blonde hair and shit, all of that. And I was walking behind them and they were walking in front of me. And I heard the name Sananda called out. And about the third time I heard it called out, it dawned on me, oh, snaps, I'm Sananda, it's me, that's me. And in the dream, the angels all turned around, whose face I didn't see up until that point. And they start applauding. Oh, okay, finally he gets it. Mama Mia. <laughs> it took him forever, but he gets it now. 
And that's how I found that name. Um, I remember calling up my friends New Year's Eve that year, which was 1995, and informing them from that point forward I would be known as Sananda, and I would appreciate very much if they would honor that because that's the identity I was now ready to assume. Um, it was probably a few months later, maybe even as much as a year later, I realized that I would probably need a, a last name. And um, I had been reading some books um, by J. Krishnamurti, Krishnamurti, who, by the way, the character of Yoda in Star Wars um, is based on. Uh, George Lucas was a fan of, of, of Krishnamurti. And so, uh, just for a frame of reference, Krishnamurti's thing was that he had been touted to be the world messiah, the world teacher, from from a, from a, a age of having been discovered as a small boy on a beach in India. There were some theosophists who discovered him and discovered, oh my God, this is the one we've been waiting for. So for about 14, 15, 16 years, he had been adopted by them and prepared to be the world teacher. Finally, at the Congress where all these many thousands and thousands of people gathered to hear him accept the mantle of the world teacher, he gets up and make a famous speech that there may be a world teacher, but it's not him. The great Bob Dylan song, it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for. And he just denounced it. No, everyone was shocked. He basically said that the truth is a pathless land, that there is no person who has your truth but you, and that you're wasting and defer a lot of time and deferring a lot of energy looking for leaders and messiahs to have your answers, that you are the only person who has your answers, and you have to trust this, and this is the greatest value in the journey. I was like, yeah, this is my guy. I want to listen to his inspiration because that's the way I felt. I wasn't looking for any more father figures. I wasn't looking for any mentors. I was just looking to get on with it and find that the, the inner courage to understand that I, my own permission to be that was all I needed. And he kept quoting this man named Maitreya or Maitreya who would come to him in visions. And he considered it to be his guardian angel. So because of Krishnamurti, Krishnamurti and his, the value he placed on the inspiration and guidance he got from this being, Maitreya, when I realized I needed the last name, I was inspired because of Krishnamurti to say, okay, I'm going to take that name because I, I want some powerful shit, you know. It's the tradition of, of, of the culture that if you're going to name someone after St. Peter, if you're going to name someone Jesus, if you're going to name someone Christopher, you're obviously naming them that. If you're naming them Muhammad, you're naming them that because you expect that the spirit of those great beings are perhaps going to bless and guide your child. And so that was kind of what um, my idea was was just in case, you know, just looking for some uh, some firepower behind the situation. 
that's how I came up as long as that story took. And I appreciate you giving me the, the, the space to, to, to tell it. Um, that's how I came up with that. And um, I, I was given to knowing meditations that in so doing, by taking this identity, not only will you raise this identity to a level of regard, but even the old identity, which they're haggling over and fighting over, will be also raised to a new level of regard and respect. And um, over time, I saw that happen. And um, I, I, I don't have any regrets. I really don't. And, and I did what I had to do. And as I said, it was initiated by the idea that they made it very, very patently clear that it didn't belong to me. It wasn't my property anymore. It was their property. And that just had overtones and undercurrents that I, I didn't feel comfortable with. It's like, I'm not a slave, okay? I don't belong to anything but the muse, but the music. I'm a slave to the music. I can work with bitches, but I cannot work for them. And that's just how that story goes. Well, that was awesome, dude. And, and that, that's, that's the way, I, if, if you're listening to people, that's how you end an interview with an amazing, amazing fucking story. I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. I, uh, I really appreciate this. I'm, I'm glad you took the time. People, go to the website. Uh, just go. It's Sananda Matreya. Just go. It has all the info on them. Um, and go listen Go listen to his music. Go to YouTube. Now check it's SanandaMaitreya.com or Sananda.org. And we have our YouTube channel also. And, and, and I'm very, very, very grateful that you allow me access to, as, as the gatekeeper to your wonderful audience. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, and I, I want to thank you and people. So check them out. Check me out. Go to coopertalk.net. You can find over 940 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. At Twitter, it's at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.